0: views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Dr. Anna Scott, Chief Science Officer of Project Canary. Project Canary is an energy ESG company that provides certification and monitoring of the energy supply chain. Anna, thank you for joining me today on the show. I'm really excited to have you guys on. And can you give me a little bit more? What is Project Canary and who are you?
2: Thanks, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So Project Canary thinks about it ourselves, we think about ourselves as a climate data company. So we're measuring and supplying the data that folks throughout the energy supply chain need to make decisions, whether those are operators who are trying to reduce their emissions footprint, midstream companies who are trying to deliver gas in the cleanest way possible, or end users who are trying to reduce their own emissions footprint, as well as their upstream emissions footprint.
1: Very cool. So you guys really look at the entire energy supply chain. I think that's that's really exciting because it is it is a a complete process. It isn't just one step and then throw things over the fence to the next step. It really is a a continuum. So thank you for that introduction about Project Canary. Now I I wanted to cover this for for my audience. Your company reports ESG data. Now, I'm sure we all know what ESG is and what ESG stands for, environmental, social, and governance. But I think that there's a lot of a lot of buzz, a lot of ambiguity in what that actually means. So can you break down for me and for the audience, what exactly do you mean when you say you report ESG data?
2: Yeah, totally. And and I should say that, you know, before I started working in the space, I, my own background is as a scientist. I, I didn't really know much about this either. But what it means to me to be thinking about ESG or environmental, social and governance is that corporations are really just thinking about how they can be good corporate actors beyond simply the idea of delivering shareholder value. And so, you know, not just thinking about maximizing the next quarter's profit, but really thinking about how you can be you know, a, a good corporate citizen, and so you know we certainly have our own spin on that. But I think writ large, what it means is that you know you're you're not dumping stuff in the environment. You're you're treating your workers properly. You've got proper you know governance in in place, uh, and so in particular when when we focus on ESG data, we like to think about it from an engineering sense. So we have the certification program that looks at uh, an operator's overall response to uh, approach to responsibility and operational excellence and how that affects air, water, land, and community. And to assess those things, what we do is we actually go through the whole uh, life cycle of the well, starting at at the drilling process. And and we look at all of the things that they're doing that could possibly affect one of those factors. So, you know, when certainly, you know, one that, is near and dear to my own heart is is the emissions question. You know, what are the emissions that are generated by an operator's activities? But some of it can be as, as detailed and granular as you know. Does an operator have a way for a community to communicate concerns if they're being impacted? And and that certainly could be something like emissions, but it can also be something as simple as as traffic. So, you know, Project Canary is is headquartered in in Denver and in the DJ Basin. We've got a lot of operators who are operating very close to communities. And one of the most common ways in which they interact is is actually through, through traffic. And so that's actually something we take into account in our certification program. So to answer your question, what, is, what does ESG mean to us at Project Canary? Well, it, it means having a really data-driven and granular approach. So I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of conversation really around ESG and, and this idea that we could put some glossy images into a Sustainability report, or to a corporate social responsibility report. You know, we could have a volunteer day with our our workers in the local community. But for us, we take a really holistic approach and say, okay, you know, how is everything? How is drilling? How is flowback? How is this affecting air? How is it affecting water? How is it affecting the local land? How is it affecting the local community? And, and not just you know getting that holistic sense for it, but really going back to the the data and making it all about the data. You know, what was the emissions footprint? What was the drilling pressures? Like, you know, when. Was was the last safety training, and and then verifying that those practices not only were planned for and had the policy in place, but were actually then executed on.
1: That I think is is definitely a a great approach and something that I liked as as a fellow scientist. I'm I'm in geology and and have had my head in rocks for a very long time so the idea of a data driven solution is is near and dear to my heart and i i noticed as you were explaining that there was something that kind of jumped out to me you were mentioning things like volunteer days and nice pretty pictures to me almost almost drives an emotional response and there's a very clear difference between having that emotional connection versus a data driven here are the numbers here are the facts of what we're actually doing now i i think that leads into the idea though of why do we even do esg reporting like what is why is it important
2: yeah totally so I think ESG reporting is important for a couple of reasons. Um, one of which is that investors are increasingly demanding it, and so we see a lot, a lot of interest from private equity firms who, you know, as, as we all know, are providing a lot of the capital for shale drilling. Who really are trying to get a handle on what are the what are the risks, what are the fi- financial risks in today's world, um, you know, not just taking into account the capital environment that we're operating in, not just taking into account the oil prices, but also taking into account the, the growing calls to for action on, on climate change, right? And so the investors are certainly uh, one big driving factor of this. But another important factor is consumers. And so, if you look at who's actually the largest buyer of natural gas, that's actually utilities in the United States. And who are utilities consumers? Well, it's 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 you, it's me, it's everyone who's turning the lights on. And those folks are demanding that we have both cost-effective energy solutions, but also lower-emission solutions. And so, you know, these kind of two pillars—the folks who are providing the capital and the folks who are buying things—at the end of the day, I think are really driving interest and the need to be doing something here. Now, that being said, I mean, that's maybe a little bit of a cynical answer. I I do think that, you know, when you read a good sustainability report, I think it drives pride. Like, I I think people want to work for an organization that that wants to do a a good job. Like, I've never met an engineer who's, who says, Oh yeah, I want to do a crappy job. Like people, when they, when people drill the wells, like they're, they're looking to drill them, right. You know, we're looking for cement casing that's done properly. And so I I think that there's a, you know, we talk about these market pulls for this, but I think at the end of the day, you know, we all want to be working for an industry, for a company and and, and just not, you know, working for a job that allows us to be making the world a better place than, you know, When we woke up, and so I think that that's kind of an overlooked part about ESG—that this idea that you know we're we're checking what we're doing, we're putting numbers to it, and um, you know we're really trying our best.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so when we do talk about something like an emotional response, it it really can be a data driven emotional response, as you said. Workers who workers want to have pride in their work so doing a job well done is something that is that is worth worth celebrating and worth quantifying because the the more you can quantify it the the better you can do and the better you can feel about it
2: yeah totally that quantification piece i think it's so important and obviously not just you know in this industry where so many of us have technical backgrounds and so you know, like you said, you, you love rocks. I, I, I love rocks, too, and I love numbers a little bit more, right? And so I think having those numbers is certainly inspiring to, to people. But I also think, you know, the wider community, even even those of us who, you know, weren't cool enough to get degrees in earth science, wink, wink, um, I, I think the general public is also calling for more numbers. Like, we've seen these glossy ads. We've seen these uh, smiling, you know, kids in the sustainability reports, and then we also see the follow-up articles in the newspaper where they'll say, oh, well, you know, company, this company wasn't actually doing good. They just were posting pictures about it. And so I think there's certainly this gap that there's been between industry and, and because of, you know, some of these headlines where having actual data for operators who are doing good, like, I think that can make a world of difference it just really adds credibility. So yeah, I totally agree. I think that quantification pieces is, is really critical.
1: Hmm. Yep. Yeah. It, it definitely is a, it's another layer on top of it that, that almost just strengthens the, the idea of what a company is doing to be that, that better corporate citizen, what they can, what they can point to and say, this is, this is what we're actually doing here. Are the, the hard numbers. I I'm curious the so as we talk about this I obviously we are focused on energy but I'm just just curious are there are there similar metrics that that other industries use in terms of kind of looking at the the ESG standards of products
2: yeah, definitely. And maybe even to take a step back, like I think the idea of a differentiated commodity is certainly something that we understand in the oil and gas space, right? Like, you know, we've got, you'd have light sweet crude, you, you know, there's different grades of crude, right? But um, just like, you know, in food supply chains, you'll have grade A, grade AA, you know, B, you see that on your yogurt, your milk, your cheese. Um, and so I think some of this is like the the idea that we could have different commodities in, you know, essentially a commodity supply chain is certainly not novel. For things like ESG, I, I think we've seen a lot of this over the past couple decades, whether it's been in, in forestry. So the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, like next time you get a paper bag from you know your local bakery, just check on the bottom. There's probably a Sustainable Forestry Initiative stamp on it. Conflict-free diamonds. I think that's certainly one that that a lot of folks have heard a lot about. Uh, and then, of course, organic food, I think, has has really taken over. Uh, from where it was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And and that was kind of an ESG approach to the agricultural industry. And all, you know, these, these things are, these certification programs are really data driven. Um, You know, they look at, you know, what are the fertilizers you're using and and, and go in deep into farm records. And so I think it seems like there's times when we might think that this might be a new idea for this industry, but, you know much as i'd love to claim credit for these awesome ideas uh at project canary uh, you know we certainly didn't invent some of these ideas we we just thought that we could have the technology that would allow us to port them over to the to the energy industry
1: very cool and and yes i think we all we can all understand that idea of a differentiated commodity when we go to the grocery store and look at an organic apple versus versus the non-organic we don't We may not be able to see a difference right there. Both of them are apples, but we understand what that organic sticker means on it and what that means for the life of that apple up until it gets to the grocery store. Now, earlier you mentioned air, water, land, and community, and you guys have that on your your website quite a bit. Can you explain a little bit more of what this certification process is and how you look at those four different categories when you're certifying the certifying the the end product
2: yeah, so I think, you know, to first to start out a little bit why we do this, I think, you know, the main concern that people have that's drive today, one that we see in the headlines, one that's uh, come up a lot with investors and, and buyers, is certainly emissions. But we think about the ESG and climate conversation as a yes and opportunity. And so we don't just focus on methane emissions because we know that. You know, you could actually be quite good on methane emissions, but be quite poor on on many other aspects. And I don't really think that folks want lower emission products if, say, an operator is being unsafe and, and people are getting injured on on work sites or if, you know, there's water spills. And so for us, we really focus on having this very holistic conversation. And, and that does mean, by the way, that we've had folks who score quite high in, in many categories, including emissions, who we've had to say, no, sorry, like there, you know, there's a safety violation or there's something else going on here that just we're not able to issue those certifications. Um, but we look across air, water, land and communities. Those are kind of four key areas we think that uh, are impacted by operations and, and oil and gas and so, you know, what we do is is we look through the the life cycle of a well. We we start thinking about that starting at the at the drilling phase, looking at flowback all the way on through through completions and then into operations, and we're taking a look at all of the many factors that might affect, uh, you know, people that might affect the, the water supply, that might affect the local land or the airshed. And uh, taking, going through all of the engineering practices that might be in place to, to affect that, right? So, you know, for example, if you think about something like water contamination, well, there's, there's quite a number of ways that you might end up having water contamination, um, you know, whether that is something that comes up in the drilling process or whether that's something that is happening in, in operations when you might have a spill on site. And so what we do is, is, go through and and look at, I mean, we look at over, you know, 500 or so data points across uh, all that life cycle. um, And we end up reviewing thousands of pages of documentation, engineering documentation. We have engineers who conduct site visits and um, actually talk and and, uh, conduct um, interviews with subject matter experts working at the companies in order to really get that holistic assessment
1: So can you go through, where do you, where do you get the data, say, for the air, the water, the land, and the community?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So a, a lot of times we're actually going back to um, the drilling log. So we're actually going through and, and pulling data that uh, has been saved by whoever was was drilling the well. Some of its were able to look at publicly reported data. Some of its were able to look at internal data. Some of its external data. Um, but for the emissions question, that's somewhere where there's really no, you know, There hasn't been a data source that exists like that on site. And so for that, we actually had to build, like create, design and build our own emissions monitors to go on site to actually be able to capture and and pick up that data. And so certainly a lot of the time we're able to get the data we need by reviewing data but for emissions, uh, we're, we're using our own sensors. We Just as a note, we we are a, a, a hardware agnostic platform. But when we went out to market, we just couldn't find any other good sensors. So we had to go forward and, and make our own. We're actively looking to work with other folks on this. Um, but uh, we're able to get really high fidelity data through using these sensors.
1: Can you... So- right now we're talking about the the methane emissions the air portion of this certification process can you go through a little bit more what what was the well i guess what what is the common method used today for for estimating emissions from from an oil and gas well
2: yeah it's a great question so Today, generally in the industry, when emissions are are measured, it's done through a very, very labor intensive process. So uh, a a technician will have to go to a site with a a camera or um, maybe a slightly more quantitative measuring device, and, and they'll have to walk that device around the entirety of a site or a facility and what they're doing in that process is they're looking and scanning for leaks. What most folks are doing these days, what most companies are doing, is they're using uh, an infrared camera, typically a FLIR camera, a forward-looking infrared camera. And those cameras are are pretty good at, at picking out... Um, difference thermal differences and, and and reflection differences. And from that they're able to actually see uh what leaks are, are going on. And and by the way, this is, it gets a little bit technical to do this because methane in these cameras can actually look somewhat similar to um say uh, vapor plumes uh, or sometimes even heat. So it, it can be a little bit tough to do. And there might be times when say if you have a cabinet or something that can get really hot in the sun, it's it it might take you a little bit longer. But what they're doing in that process is they're going and sort of saying, hey, you know, is this an emission source that um you know is emitting something and it's not supposed to be and and, and somebody will log that down um and and tag it, hopefully to, to fix it if if they can't fix it on the spot. Those practices vary operator to operator. But what they'll do to compute the actual how much the emissions are is they'll apply what are called these emission factors to the count of the leaks they found. So these are factors that the EPA and industry groups came up with in the 1990s. And essentially, you know, they took field measurements for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of leaking components, and just took the average of those and said, hey, you know, this is how much on average, when something like this is leaking, it's leaking. And so those average numbers are still used today, even, even when the technology has, you know, really, really changed over the past couple of decades. Uh, and so you just count up the number of leaks you have and you multiply that by the number of emission, by the the correct emission factor. And that's the process to understand what the, the carbon footprint is of our um our gas supply system. And, and the reason why that it can be really insufficient is because that process is only done once a year, or you know, for some operators, they might be grandfathered in, they don't even have to do it at all. And so what we do at Project Canary is, is we put out devices that are on the well pad, on the midstream site, on the facility site all the time. And so we move towards a 24 seven type of detection And we think this is a much better way to do things, not only because a lot of these emissions are are quite intermittent. So if, you know, you just go once, you won't catch it. But it's just a little bit like running a fire department without having any smoke detectors, you know. And so our approach is that if we can go and catch those leaks early while they're small, we can stop them. And then by having measurement devices on the pad, we can actually quantify what those emission sources are so that we can get a better understanding of the greenhouse gas footprint.
1: Okay, so you you essentially put out continuously monitoring devices and, and I'm sorry, I missed that. Did you say these are the same infrared style cameras or are these a different type of sensing device?
2: This is a different type of sensing device. And the important difference is that we're able to actually measure the amount of emissions that are on that pad and that's a difference with the way that things are done now with the camera so the cameras can detect if there's a leak they can have a pretty picture but they can't tell you how much is leaking with our sensors we're actually able to quantify the total mass of emissions that's coming off of a well pad or an upstream site
1: and now how many sensors do you need to put out per well pad
2: yeah, so it's a great question. So that the answer can vary a little bit depending on the size of a facility. Certainly, you know, if you work at one of these newer facilities, it's much bigger. The, the answers can vary. Typically, we do about three different sensors, uh, kind of to triangulate emissions. And I think one of the funnest facts about doing this is we found that um, not only is it diminishing returns if you add additional sensors, there's actually a point at which your measurements get worse if you add too many sensors. Um, so we stick we stick with a few sensors. Um, you know, as we start to work with larger area sites, we're definitely working on adding sensors.
1: That is that's fascinating that you actually get to the point where you start getting lower values. The, I guess the, uh, a follow up question is if you are only using three sensors and there may be multiple different leaking site locations how do you end up defining or determining where you would put those three sensors to to fully quantify the amount of of leaks
2: yeah it's a great question and i think the first thing that will be helpful to understand here is that in the the wild outside in the field wind moves around all the time, like all, all, all the time. And so if you've looked at, you know, I, I was a, you know, meteorology student and looked at uh, weather data, typically you're used to looking at like average data, but when we're actually measuring outside, it is like minute to minute, the wind direction is changing. And so that allows us to get information that that differs depending on where on the site we are. So first, the, you know, the, the first critical piece is that um, we're actually able to get um those 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 wind measurements that's that's really quite helpful
1: so you have wind measurements and then based on i guess where the primary wind direction is going and then with your sensor tools you can more or less triangulate the value
2: yeah yeah that's correct so certainly um you know the distances that we are to the pad so we're pretty close to the pad Um, Sometimes we're directly on it. Sometimes we're in the middle. A lot of times we're on the fence line. And, And with that, we're close enough so that with the wind information, we're kind of able to pretty easily backtrack that and see exactly where we're hitting on the well pad. And then, you know, with our additional other sensors, we're kind of able to combine that information. So when we have uh, a spike in, in methane, we're able to combine that with the wind direction from one sensor. And then, you know, as the wind direction changes, you'll pick that up on another sensor and then maybe a third sensor. And from that, we'll be able to, as you put it, triangulate and get a little bit more precise information uh, about where on the pad we are. I think today we're able to do this down to the equipment level. So, for example, you know, if you have a, a pad that has like maybe like a tank and a combustor and uh, some separators, like we could differentiate those. We're starting to be able to, to get it down a little bit farther than that, um, or we can actually pinpoint, you know, where we think it's likeliest that that's coming from on that equipment group. Um, and then who knows, you know, one day we may actually be able to get this down to the component level.
1: That is... It's fascinating to think about how you can take three sensors and then a certain set of data coming in, like wind, to then and and then of course the the layout of the well pad and all of the equipment to then figure out where exactly there are leaks. I with that, what kind of? I'm curious what what there has to be some type of backend software application that is also going into these sensor technologies.
2: Yeah, definitely. Joe, you trying to steal our secret sauce?
1: <laughs> no, no. That...
2: <laughs> no, no. Yeah. It... So we've, we've worked a lot on um, creating algorithms that could really, really accurately do this. Um, and we've been at this for a couple of years now. And so I think we're getting pretty good at this. So essentially what happens is that um, our, our IoT sensors, so all of our sensors are IoT enabled and solar powered. So we put them off the grid. We send that data up to um, the cloud. So just we're sending it to a, a server and uh, we're doing that about every minute. And in the background, our algorithms are ingesting that data, taking, you know, checking for a couple things, checking first and foremost that we don't have really high uh, emissions. And if we did, we'd be able to send out an alert. And then in the background, we're also doing calculations of things like emissions, combining that wind data together with the the methane data, as well as doing stuff like localization, like you mentioned.
1: So this is a the the cool part about this is that it is a a very localized specific data point that you're getting from from a relatively small small data set being only three sensors on on some size of well pad and and what what really excites me is the real-time nature at least it it sounds like it's real time where you're getting data and processing that data every minute and every minute then can you send a report to to the operator if they wanted the information on a minute by minute basis
2: yeah exactly so um the thing to say is you know it's certainly uh not a a big data problem compared to say you know like geophysics right but we do see that that's quite a lot of data for an operator to handle. So like, yes, we can be sending out data every minute. And in fact, you can sit on our cloud dashboard. So we have this this dashboard that our our operators and stakeholders can use in order to, to visualize and see their data a little bit better. And that is something that is refreshing uh, every minute. Um, it would be quite surprising to me if we had an operator who is really interested in, in getting that high level um but we certainly can so you know Joe, if, if you would like to get that that kind of data for uh, a well that you're working at, we can certainly get that for you
1: yeah I I think it's more important the fact that that there are those built-in flags that a an operator could then be warned one minute everything's fine but the next minute there's there's a a, a hypothetical fire that they need to go and put out or potentially a real fire that they need to go and put out and i think that's the that is one of the values that i see in in your technology i think we have gotten a down a rabbit hole that is very exciting but maybe let's let's get back a little bit higher level the so you you use these sensors and and other data going in to make more reliable and more accurate measurements of the emissions i'm curious with with that specific focus what kind of i guess emission savings and what kind of of cost savings are there as we as an operator implements the the project canary certification process
2: yeah so the they're both operators so operators i think both get some type of cost savings especially in today's gas pricing environment as well as pretty significant emission savings you know so certainly when we started uh Rolling out our product, I think the pricing environment was was really different, and you know I think there's been a lot of independent analysis that shows that most methane remediation, um, with with a few exceptions, is actually uh, cost neutral. So that means that if you can install, you know, many of the types of um, leak detection or uh, leak avoidance technologies that are out there, including methane detection. Um, you may have to pay up front uh, for, for that technology. We operate on a subscription model, but but let's say you know you, you just summed up all that cost and, and you looked at all of the benefit uh, you achieved from just the, the the product savings. That number turns out to be like you as if you wouldn't have spent any money at all. Um, but instead, I think we focus a lot on, or not instead, but in addition, we focus a lot on the emissions reduction. So methane is a pretty significant contributor to climate change and oil and gas emissions represent about a third of the overall impact of methane on climate. And so I think, you know, in in, that's the world in which we operate. And I think a lot of operators are are doing their their darndest to they're doing their part. What we've seen is that operators are able to take the data that we're using and make both short and long-term decisions. So for example, we have an operator who is using our data. We're sending out a lot of alerts related to their tanks, and they eventually decided to get rid of the tanks altogether and install newer technology. On the other hand, we've had leak alerts that go off. You know, certainly a common one is when we have a thief hatch that gets left open um, but we've also seen things like, uh, you know, if somebody's responding within hours to an event that they it would have taken them months to, to process previously uh, or months to, to find potentially. And I think one of the fastest action we've seen is an operator we are working with that had a water hauler who wasn't using their vapor recovery lines. And we were picking it up on our sensors. And certainly that water hauler was supposed to be. The first time we caught them, they got a warning. The second time we caught them, we, you know, worked together with the producer to help put up some signage and some educational material, some training for that water hauler. But the third time we caught them, uh, our sensors caught them within like 10 minutes of arriving on site and they were fired that very same day.
1: That is, that is quick action. And I think that is the, those are the kind of emission savings that, that you like to hear about, not necessarily the the immediately disposing of the problem in the terms of terminating a contract or a contractor relationship but I think the the idea of finding these very simple things like an open thief hatch that that's something that I would imagine happens somewhat frequently so it's something where it's it's a simple mistake but it can have a a pretty drastic effect on on what you're Letting out to the environment.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, the I, I am curious as we as we talk about this, and you you did kind of answer this and allude to it, but the a lot of this time I've been thinking more about larger companies, publicly traded companies, or private equity backed companies that that now have very specific ESG standards. So they have that very clear financial or very public front facing office that they need to they need to be a better citizen of the world. And and so that's why they it would make sense for them to start doing continuous monitoring. But I I'm curious with a lot of the with a significant portion of hydrocarbon production being being produced by small independent operators, what kind of why would they be interested in something like continuous monitoring and a and this ESG certification for their products?
2: Well, I should add that I should note that we certainly see a significant you know, a, a significant portion of our customers are are small and independent. Um, though certainly that does bleed over with the private equity backed category. I, I think the financing environment is certainly one that a lot of people are are looking at a lot. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be curious to see what happens sort of over the next year. Now that we see prices have really rebounded, but you know, we've we've seen that as the industry changes, as it's consolidating or you know you're having to go out and do fundraising a, a lot of people are being asked what their ESG strategy is. And so I, I think you know in the environment that we've we've been in, that has been a, a major consideration and I think it's one where having this type of data can help communicate that um, you know whoever's investing in you doesn't you know isn't exposing themselves to potential undue risk. And so that's kind of how I'd encourage uh, some of those folks to to think about it. It's how some of their peers are thinking about it. Um, and, and then the other area where I think it's going to be of of interest is certainly in the acquisition space. We're certainly seeing a lot of consolidation happening in the industry, and and in that world, you know, I think it's 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 a similar conversation.
1: That's a really interesting point. That and something that that. My company, well, the company I'm with, PetroLearn, we've kind of looked at that idea as well. When when we're talking about acquisitions previously, it has always been how much, how much production is there and how much left is there in the ground. Whereas nowadays, our, our aspect is geothermal and there is heat in that ground. And we should really be thinking about quantifying how much hydrocarbon and how much heat there is to value that that acreage but then also with the acquisition how how much emissions do you have what is the carbon footprint of that and i think we we see that today as well as as larger companies are putting in these these net zero targets and these goals and one of the first steps they do is they start to divest of their largest emitting properties which is a which is an interesting way to do it, but there's also a there's also other ways, such as, such as employing project canary certification to to lower their footprint on some of those some of those properties.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's definitely something that we're seeing a lot um, in the industry, right? Like there is that that Bloomberg article about um, you know the the. BP and, and uh divestiture of the Alaskan assets to to Hillcorp. I think that's definitely something you know we like to keep keep an eye on and I think that's where you know these types of environmental services that actually improve the the environmental performance of the assets are going to be really critical.
1: Mhm. So that's kind of where the kind of where I guess the the reporting is going where do you see is where do you see ESG as a whole and reporting and and at a project scale and at a company scale in the next 5 to 10 years
2: i think that ESG reporting is going to be really data driven because i think consumers and investors are really demanding for it. And so i think it'll be quantitative. I think it won't be qualitative. It will no longer be sufficient to say how many smiling kids and volunteer day pictures do you have in your sustainability report? I think people are going to want to see real numbers. The same way we have financial disclosures and a whole financial disclosures industry uh you know that asks for standards and asks for numbers and asks that those numbers were calculated in in a you know a standard way. So I'm really looking forward to ESG reporting going data driven and having that data kind of communicated to the, you know, both the investment community, the, the buying community, but also the greater public.
1: That this question may open up a can of worms, but feel free, we can cut it if we want to. <laughs> the That's the beauty of podcasts. So there's definitely that consumer driven side of it where where people will expect and want to see that ESG portfolio and the numbers behind what a company is doing for for their their carbon footprint or their their entire environmental impact i'm curious do you think that there will ever be a level of of a of a specific governance of saying we we as companies need to meet XYZ emissions or XYZ uh, carbon neutrality
2: well I think we're already seeing some of that starting to emerge so you know there's the one future alliance which has a a methane intensity cutoff of 0.28 percent so that means that they're up you know members have pledged to get their leak rates collectively down to below that 0.28 percent. Um, and, you know, we we certainly have our cutoffs in, in our TrustWell certifications as well. So I think we're going to see more and more of this. You know, one th- trend that you're picking up on correctly is that we are seeing some folks to, to pledge to go to net zero. And, um, you know, I think at Project Canary, we're super excited to see that. We actually just announced the, uh, a, a net zero transaction. It's the first one in the U.S. that, that we're aware of with... Um, uh, a company called Pure West Energy, where they have uh, been working with us to reduce their emissions uh, as much as possible. And then they're di- con- directly and continuously measuring their emissions with our uh, our canaries, our monitors. And then for the emissions that are left that they weren't able to reduce, we're actually offsetting those with carbon offsets. But those carbon offsets aren't just based off of estimates. They're, they're based off, off of actual calculations. And so I'm excited to see you know, what the future holds, but certainly I think the trend is definitely towards more action like that.
1: Yep. Yeah. And I think that's good. And and it, it sounds like it is something where it can be primarily consumer driven and not there, there's companies who are stating what they want to do. And, and the most important part is, Showing that you're actually doing it, putting your money where your mouth is.
2: Yeah, a hundred percent. I think the consumer-driven trend is going to continue. You know, I, I won't never say never with with regulations. I think we just haven't seen that action yet, and so we'd certainly encourage companies to make sure they're staying out ahead of this.
1: Hmm. So where, I guess, what role do you see Project Canary playing in? in this future energy industry in the next five to 10 years.
2: I certainly think that we're going to continue to be doing our our core business today on measurement of, of upstream emissions, as well as, you know, the rest of that energy supply chain. But I think the way in which we'll do that may start to shift and change. And, and I think we're also going to get called on sooner rather than later to enter into some of these other uh, methane intensive industries, you know, to take the expertise that we really built up in oil and gas and, and translate those skills to agriculture, to, to landfills. And and we do have some, some work in those spaces that is isn't yet public, but you know, I, I expect that to get bigger, but I also think that the type of, of emissions measurement and, and holistic operational certification work we do is going to be really important no matter where we get our energy from. And so I think ultimately the there's many concerns with all types of energy, whether it's, you know, it's geothermal, which is, you know, there, there's drilling and fluids associated with that, whether that's uh, electrification where we have Um, you know, mineral supply chains that are going to be involved in battery storage that are going to have risks associated with those. So I think the future is certainly bright for the type of work that we do. And, uh, you know, I don't expect the need for this type of data to go away anytime soon.
1: Yep, I agree. And I think the, the idea of the continuous monitoring and even for methane specifically is is going to be around and and we will only see the the increase of the desire for that real-time quantification of of you really a, a company's a company's footprint and emissions so with with that is there anything else that you wanted to say before we get into the final questions
2: yeah, absolutely. So Joe, as, as somebody who works a lot in geothermal, you know, what do you what did you learn from this and what do you think is applicable to the work that you do day to day?
1: So based on all of this and in geothermal, there is I think that the the idea of real-time continuous monitoring and and looking at the the different ways that you can can apply and combine different data sources to get very specific results that is is very interesting to me and that is something that 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 the company I'm at PetroLearn, we've we've applied for for different grants and different projects, and we are working on different ideas that all kind of relate to that same idea, looking at one or two seemingly, well, two related data sets that need to be combined in a unique way in order to answer a question that that is a relatively difficult question to answer given those input data sets. So it's something that is, that is. it's cool to see people doing it elsewhere. And it is, it's something that I guess is is, the idea of continuous monitoring is very important. And how we, where the, I guess where the benefit comes from is the is figuring out how to look at that data. I think that was a very roundabout way to answer that question.
2: <laughs> no, it's great. I love it.
1: <laughs> okay. So with final questions, the the first one, what is the most important book you've ever read?
2: I think it's the innovator's dilemma. Uh, which is uh, essentially a, a book explaining um, why we see innovation coming so much from small firms and, and not from large firms.
1: That is very interesting, and it is that is a dilemma, isn't it? That was that was one of the reasons I've never really wanted to be at a very large company, is because. I've got too many ideas and I want to try and figure them out.
2: Yeah, no. So essentially, you know, this was the first book that um, someone recommended that I read when I said I was thinking about starting a company Um, and it explains exactly that. It it offers one, what I thought was a pretty convincing theory about the the life cycle of business life cycles and, and products and why so often we see new technology that in many times at first glance might look you know, almost inferior in one respect, but really manages to take a, a toehold in, in the market um, and, and and drive, you know, ultimately value and success. And I think there's a lot of fun examples in the book, whether it's um, whether it's uh, the, the flash memory disks, like a solid state dr- disk as opposed to a, a spinning hard disk or um, or there's I think there's like a tractor implement example as well. That's that's a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> that sounds like fun. I'll have to add it to the reading list. So the next question, when will we be net zero as a society?
2: Oh my gosh, this is such a hard one. I think when we will be at net zero depends heavily on what we define net zero as. And so I think that what what I hear from the um, energy folks I talk to who are working really hard on what is our energy supply mix going to look like in the next I don't know how, you know, the next decades, they tell me that they've got a pretty good handle on like an 80% decarbonization. And it's that remaining 20% that they're sort of like, I don't know how that's going to go. And so that's where, you know, you you could maybe have carbon capture technology. You could have, like, there sounds like there's a lot of options and there's no one firm answer yet. So I will punt on this question and say, I think, you know, what net zero is going to be will really like what we decide that needs to be is really going to determine that answer.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a good answer. And one that in a roundabout way that has been the answer multiple times that it really is a, the same as when we talk about ESG, it's kind of a, it's almost a buzzword or a loaded question until you really lay down the definition and until you put that line in the sand that says this is how we're going to quantify it and i think that's the that's the important part there is first quantifying it and i think that's a something that we've seen from the current administration that they've they've kind of said okay we are going to have net zero electricity by 2050 and they're they're almost trying to put specific standards in place which is significantly better than people saying we will be net zero by by some random date
2: yeah, certainly, you know, we see a number, you know, in the utilities that we work with, I see a number of net zero by 2020 pledges, sorry, 2050 pledges, pardon me. Uh, you know, certainly 2035 is, is an aggressive number that I've seen in, in some. Um, and then, you know, my favorite uh, sustainability report I've read recently um, was titled Beyond Net Zero. As in, you know, we're, we've, net zero is passe and they're already moving beyond this. So I, I think that, um, you know, we'll see where, where folks settle on this one. Um, and, you know, I look forward to finding out what beyond net zero looks like as well.
1: Yeah, I am really curious. I will need to get that from you because that is, that is an ambitious goal to be beyond net zero. So the the final question is, do you have one question for me?
2: Yeah. So I, I already got to ask you a little bit about what you learned from this. But let me ask you, what's the most important book you've read?
1: The most important book that I have read. So the most important book I've read is... This is a cop-out answer, almost a punt, but I'm going to say the book that I am reading at that current time, because the reason that I read books is to either gain a specific piece of knowledge that I need at that time, or I read it because it is an interesting topic that I want to explore whether it's a fiction book or or a travel diary book and and I think that it's whatever book I'm reading at that time gives me a different perspective to then tackle whatever I'm working on at that time or it gives me those specific pieces of knowledge that I need in order to try and answer answer the question that i currently have in front of me so right now i don't know the title of the book but it's something something like life on the ranch by teddy roosevelt and it is it is all about his time living on a ranch and just the day to day of what 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 a cowboy would have done living and working on a ranch and it is it's fascinating to me because it is it is a very hard living but it is also a a simple living and i think that that gives me this perspective of of what we do is is almost Well, what we do is a very complex, complex thing, modern life. What we do is very difficult, no matter what it is. But the primary goal of doing that is to make life better, whether it is making a lot of money so you can buy nice, big, fancy couches, or Hmm. whether it is cutting emissions from from the oil and gas industry so that we can lower our climate or our carbon footprints. Ultimately, the goal is to make a better society or a better life, whether it's for you or your family or your future generations.
2: Absolutely. I I love that. And make sure that you got enough water for that ranch that's off the grid.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, With that, thank you, Anna, for joining me on this podcast. And thank you to everybody for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions podcast. If you're still listening, I can only assume that you like my show. So please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing those two simple things will help these stories reach a wider audience if you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry connect with oggn on linkedin or visit oggn.com you can find one of our other 14 podcasts you can read the blog and see all of the the fun stuff going on at the oil and gas global network if you're in the houston area i encourage you to check out the canon co-working space i enjoy working there while i'm in houston And it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixtures. If you go there, mention OGGN, and they'll give you a free day pass, so that way you can see what I'm talking about. Until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story
0: on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.